Hello and welcome to the Out of Order podcast. My name is Lauren Burke and I'm the Senior Program Coordinator for GMF Cities based in Washington, D.C. Today's episode will focus on youth participation in politics and civic education. With me are GMF Visiting Fellow Scott Warren and special guest Dr. Christine Hubner. In addition to being a GMF Fellow, Scott is currently a Visiting Fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University, where he teaches an undergraduate class on social entrepreneurship, policy, and systems change. Prior to that, Scott co-founded Generation Citizen during his senior year at Brown University and served as its CEO for more than 11 years. During that time, he made Generation Citizen into one of the preeminent civics organizations in the country, promoting action civics across diverse geographies through best-in-class programming and concrete policy change. Christine is a youth researcher and advisor to European policymakers on all things relating to young people's politics. She is a partner at a Berlin-based think tank, Depart, and research fellow at Nottingham Trent University. In her research, Christine explores how young people want to be engaged in political processes and how they look at things like citizenship, democracy, and current political issues. Christine has published widely on young people's political views in Germany, the UK, and Europe. So Christine, maybe you could kick us off by telling us a little bit about your background. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Lauren. Nice to be here. As you nicely introduced me, that was a very kind introduction. I am a youth researcher. I'm based uh, sort of in two hats in in continental Europe and currently also in the UK. I also have half a foot in in academic research and then the other half um, in applied research. So I work a lot with political parties, with civil society organisations and also with public institutions and how young people can be more engaged in, in political processes. So how did you get involved in that area of research? Yeah, that was a great question. Um, And I always have to think a little bit back to, it's probably quite a while ago, I got into this research probably around 2014. So it's it's been a couple of years that I've been doing this. Um, and it was a really a memorable experience. I was living in the Netherlands at the time, and it was the time of the 2014 European elections. And the turnout among young people really had been hitting like new lows every every other election. And I remember going into a polling station in the Netherlands and there was absolutely nobody there. I was the only person, which was very sad. And um, the same picture kind of emerged in the UK. Germany turnout was low among young people as well. And none of my friends really were in, into into voting in that election at all. And then at the same time, I was um, advising um, research on the Scottish referendum um, of, on independence in 2014, where six and 17-year-olds had been newly enfranchised. And what I observed there was the complete opposite. There were young people who were out on the streets talking about politics, engaging with uh, older people on what should be the right way forward for Scotland. And that experience, sort of seeing the empty polling stations in, in, in the Netherlands and then seeing young people on, on the streets engaged in political issues in Scotland really puzzled me. So it, it drove me to look a bit more into this. And another motivation probably, I mean, I guess a lot of us researchers start from a personal motivation is also in my own biography. I really wanted to find out why I, as a young person, also found it really hard to engage in political institutions, even though I would have considered myself always as really politically interested and diligently following political issues. So a focus in my research is always understanding sort of that individual motivation a little bit more than the institutional processes behind it. Although the more I get into this research, the more I learn that you can't really look at one without the other. Has there been one thing that's really surprised you the most in all of your research? Just regional differences or 
sameness across countries? Yeah, I think what really surprises me again and again is that there seems to be this constant back and forth between different narratives on youth political engagement. And like I've been doing research on this for years and still both of these positions are always out there. So one is just this this sort of kind of narrative, these young people can't be bothered with politics. And then on the other end, it swings to sometimes the other extreme, right? There's an, a complete celebration of newly engaged uh, young people, whether that is in climate strikes or uh, welcoming refugees, um, or in the UK, the debated youth quake um, with high turnout among young people, allegedly. So, you know, there's always these two positions out there. And um, we still have a lot of questions unanswered as to which one's true, probably the middle. But um, And there's always stereotyping going on of young people's engagement. And there's still a lot sort of to be said, even though I have a feeling I say the same things to policymakers all the time. You know, there's always value in delivering that message again, because young people seem to be always stereotyped as the the youth that all does one thing. So um, and even among young people, young people themselves can, can be their worst critics. So there is a lot of work still to be done, which continues to surprise me. That definitely sounds familiar from an American's perspective. And um, I wanted to switch over to Scott for a little bit. Having worked with youth in the United States, do a lot of those comments resonate with you as well? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've uh, had the, the privilege of, of leading Generation Citizen for, for about 12 years. And I think that one of the myths that we have about young people in this country is that they're apathetic. Uh, I, I, I don't think that they're apathetic at all. But a lot of what Christine um, is saying resonates. I, I, I think that uh, young people in the U.S. often don't see the political process uh, in government and local government in, in particular as the best way to affect change. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons for that that we can get into, many logical, many I think um, that, that young people feel like public institutions and government don't, don't care about them, um, aren't engaging them in, in the ways that, that they might want. And, and from, from my vantage point, we're not educating young people uh, to participate in the, the system uh, as well. Uh, but I think it comes down to we as a country, and I think a lot of this, what, what, what Christine uh, was saying resonates um, you know, a, a, across the, the Atlantic. We as a country have not prioritized ensuring that young people have legitimate voices in the political process. Um, and I think that there's a whole host of reasons that we need to do that. Um, but, but until we actually uh, invest serious resources and energy into seeing young people as having uh, some of the requisite ideas that we need to improve our democracy in a time of need, uh, I think it's going to be difficult for, for, um, for, for youth political participation to um, improve in the ways that we want it to. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, so really quickly, for those of us who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about Generation Citizen and how it got started, what you do, and what your process for engaging young people looks like? For sure. And, and I will say that, that some of Christine's background resonates a lot with me, too. I, I One of the things that I think is uh, potentially interesting about my background, but also the founding of Generation Citizen, and a lot of it actually starts abroad. Uh, and so I, I grew up abroad. My, my dad was in the State Department. Um, and almost the inverse of Christine, my sort of first uh, experience with democracy was I had the opportunity to, as a 10th grader to observe the, the first truly democratic elections in Kenya's history. And I saw how incredibly excited people were to take to the polls for the first time, um, saw, you know, lines, hundreds of people deep in, in the rural village of, of Rongai, Kenya. 
Uh, and it was this spark for me of, of, wow, this can be the potential and power of democracy of individuals coming together to make a collective difference. Um, the opposition candidate actually won, which, which in a country, which an emerging democracy like Kenya is, is, is pretty rare. Um, but I will say five years later, uh, Kenya had another election that did not go as well. Um, the, the, the incumbent at the time rigged the election and there was post-election violence in which over a thousand people died. Those lessons stayed with me when I went back to college in the U.S. Um, and, and I saw a lot of what Christine was talking about in the sense of uh, young people wanting to make their communities and their world a better place, but not necessarily seeing politics as the best way to do so. Uh, there's a whole host of reasons for that, as I said, but one key one uh, is that in the U.S. historically or in, in the last few decades, we have not prioritized civics education. Uh, and when we have, it's here, the three branches of government here, how Bill becomes a lot, it's the most boring class in, in school. Um, so I started Generation Citizen as a way to figure out how do we transform civics education? How do we get it back in schools? And how do we make it the most exciting, relevant class where young people are learning politics by actually doing politics? Um, and so that's what we did. We created an organization um, uh, where we promoted something called Action Civics. Um, which young people, uh, largely in secondary school, so sixth to 12th grade, which choose very local issues that they care about, teen jobs, police brutality, homelessness. Um, they would figure out the root causes of those issues and then take some sort of real action, largely using the local governmental process. Um, then we also engaged in some advocacy and policy work, which we can talk through to try to get civics uh, to be something that was prioritized at the state level and also to look into to lowering the voting age to, to 16. So it's an organization that's that's across the country, um, really, I think, uh, engaging in groundbreaking work to, to ensure that civics is taught in an experiential way uh, and taught in a way that, that really prioritizes equity and racial equity specifically in terms of young people understanding um, some of the, the, the true history of, of democracy in the co this country while making sure it's a, it's a relevant subject as well, which for too often has not been. And do you feel like over time, the students' attitudes change, like from when they start the civics program to when they finish the program, like their perceptions of their own power and their ability to make a difference? And do you find variations between like different neighborhoods, different schools, even within schools? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? or any examples of a project they've done? Absolutely. A lot of times when we start the program and we tell young people, all right, you're going to choose an issue you care about and take some sort of action. They're sort of like, yeah, right. This is, this is never going to happen. You know, people don't care about what we think. And um, it's not that there's a complete switch over the, the, the course of the program. Uh, but I think young people start to realize that, oh, you know, if, if I actually uh, invest time and energy and, and, and talk to decision makers that can make a difference. One of the things that makes uh, the most difference for young people is when they can actually talk to a city council member, when they can talk to a state legislator, they realize that they're actual people. I think for, for so many of us and for young people, uh, specifically government sort of this amorphous, impersonal body, when people recognize that uh, the government really is just people that, that make the system, um, it makes it makes such a difference. And, and so I think that that's one of the things that we really try to do is to demystify the process uh, so that young people understand that they can actually have a voice in the process. Um, and, and we want elected officials to really pay attention to what they're saying, too. We work throughout the country. Um, and what's interesting is that there's there's definitely issues that um, that that cross across, you know, the entire country. Um, uh, you're seeing, you know, housing and homelessness come up in, in areas throughout. 
Um, one thing that's really come up, and this happened before the pandemic, is mental health. Young people are talking about mental health um, and our country's lack of investment in mental health as, as, a, as a huge problem. And police uh, brutality and police community relations is something that's come up in a number of schools as well. We predominantly work with um, historically underrepresented young people and, and predominantly young people of color. And this is something that they've, they've recognized to be a problem for a while. Um, so I think that there's power in sort of recognizing that they, they have those common experiences. Um, and there, there's just power in them realizing, I, I tend to think about it, you know, the more, the more bro broken politics becomes, the more important it is for young people to become political. Um, because if they do not participate in the process, uh, that power gap is going to be filled by other people. Um, and so I think that that's something that, that's really important to recognize because a lot of these young people say, why should I participate in a system that doesn't value my perspective and doesn't value my voice? Uh, and I get that. We don't want to teach young people that, hey, the system's fine. All you have to do is participate in it. But we also want to teach them, you know, the more frustrated you are, the more important it is that you're making sure that you have a seat at the table. So coming back to that, it's Definitely not a secret that there's intergenerational tension and that I assume would come out, especially when you're dealing with high schoolers versus people who are a little bit older who have been in government for a while. Um, given that most people in positions of power are from an older generation, has it been hard to convince public officials to take the students and their concerns seriously? And Christine, um, have you found anything about that in your research about young people being sort of having a sense that they're not being taken seriously and that being a primary reason for their dropout. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of what Scott just said absolutely resonates this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Young people, you know, the more you speak to them, the more what actually is part of their problem is that they see very little hope in ever making a change. And added to that is that I think maybe a little bit more than older people, I'm not exactly sure, young people also have a huge expectations towards political outcomes. You know, they see want to see change more often than not. And if that change doesn't come around and there's no hope to making that change because they're being outnumbered by older people and it becomes a pretty hopeless situation for them. And, you know, at that point, I, I also really can fully empathize with young people saying, you know, what's the point in me turning out in an election if, if my vote's never going to make a change? So I think there's sort of different sort of societal processes at work if that's individualization and if that is um, intergenerational imbalances, all of these kind of things come together. And, and certainly, I mean, if I if I just look at the numbers for Germany, the proportion of older voters in Germany is in, in increasing to extreme highs in recent years. So uh, we had elections last week. In that election, almost 58% of eligible voters were 50 years or older. 58%. And the proportion of young people is ever more increasing from sort of around 20% of under 30s in the 60s to less than 15% of under 30s now. So you can sort of see that the, the odds are stacked against young people um, in, in elections, at least. Um, and the problem with policymakers is often not that they don't understand the sheer math behind it. Like more often than not, I, I meet people who are genuinely interested in, in wanting to address young people and their concerns as voters as well. But um, there is sort of a, sometimes a lack of knowing how to do that or also a lack of trust on the side of young people and, and sort of 
um, mutual communication skills on both ends. So how to communicate and how to communicate authentically to reach young people is, is quite difficult sometimes for older politicians, I find. And similarly, and that's maybe even more important, how to make sure that policies address issues in ways that are relevant to young people. For example, you know, you can think about the pension system, which in Germany is a huge issue at the moment, is really, really hard from an older perspective because, you know, um, you don't want to lose the trust among um, all voters, regardless of whether they're young or old, but then they're fundamentally different ways. For example, that young people want the pension system to be reformed from um, middle-aged or older voters. And that is really quite hard um, for politicians, I think, even though there might be a genuine um, will to do so and to do that, to to sort of um, bridge that gap to some extent. And the other thing that I always see is that authenticity is, is really important for young people. Um, they have hugely higher standards for authenticity and credibility um, to some extent. And I, I guess that might have to do, I'm not an expert on this, but with the information age that we live in, the mountains of information that we, we are used to having to wade through to, to sort of um, cut through. And um, it's very hard for people in general, not just older people or older politicians, to, to cut through that and do it do so authentically so to win young people over in terms of um particular political messages, for example. So in that sense, you know, when we work with young people, the one thing that we always hear is that politicians don't communicate authentically, especially when they try to communicate with, with, with younger voters. But then on the other hand, all the, all the politicians don't have a clue of how they actually need to do that. Um, and I think one sort of sign of hope for that, if we again, if we look to the elections last week, you know, a, a genuine solution, I think, is to bring younger people more into leading political offices. Um, so I found it really encouraging to, to uh, learn that in the new um, German parliament, um, the proportion of um, uh, parliamentarians under 30 has doubled compared to last election. It's still not enough, very high, don't get me wrong. It's still uh, really, really low. But, you know, we're moving into the right direction. There's been a lot more MPs voted into office that are uh, 30 years or younger now um, than in the previous uh, legislative period. So, you know, that's encouraging. And I think these young MPs can also sort of, even if they do so intuitively, but they can make sure that they uh, communicate authentically and that they also address issues in ways that are relevant to young people because they themselves are young as well. Yeah, I just I just want to echo. Uh, there's so much of it that resonates from a from a U.S. context too. I think one of the most important things that I hear too um, is that it's really important for elected officials to pay attention to young people, not just during elections, right? I think that one of the 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 issues that comes up um, is that young people will say, "Oh, they just start you know paying attention to us or doing voter registration efforts in the months before an election," um, rather than um, you know, actually emphasizing issues that, that that affect young people from a policy perspective throughout. I think it's going to be really interesting in the U.S. perspective. Um, you know, this um, the the reconciliation bill that's being debated right now. Um, there's going to have to be some hard decisions. Uh, you know, is Congress going to pick issues like Medicare and long-term care, um, which skew towards older voters, over issues like childcare, climate, and housing, which skew towards younger voters? Um, these are real policy decisions. And the problem is, to, to Christine's point, which, which is the same here, is that older voters participate more. And so this, this cycle happens, this vicious cycle happens, um, and, and you almost can't blame anyone where elected officials are paying attention to people that participate, therefore they're paying attention to older voters, therefore younger voters don't participate because they feel like their issues aren't taken seriously, right? And so you have to break it at 
at some at some point. Um, and, and I do think, you know, and I, I hear this with a lot of the elected officials that I have the opportunity to engage with, there's both a confusion and a frustration. I think the confusion is, you know, how do we actually um, uh, address issues that the young people care about? I think the frustration is, well, they're not engaging in the right way or they don't understand how they're actually supposed to participate or they're asking us to do things that we can't do from a purely governmental or civic perspective. Um, and so I think that there has to be just more of an emphasis on, we really do want to prioritize issues young people care about, and we want to bring them into the process too. And we want to do so throughout, not just in the months before an election. Um, but I, I think the, the point that um, that Christine made is, is, is really important. I, you know, I saw, you know, the article about the extent to which, um, you know, Germany uh, had, had elected, um, you know, a number of, of, of younger um, parliamentarians, which is, um, which is, which is great. Um, and I think is, is really powerful. I think one of the things is that, that the age of, um, you know, representatives in, 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 in the U S Congress, I think the median age is, um, uh, you know, is, is, uh, so, so the U S Congress, one in five members are 40 or younger. Um, and the average age in Congress, the average age in U S Congress is 58. Um, and so when you're talking about actually addressing it and in Germany's new parliament, it's 47 and a half. And so that's, that's much younger, but when you're talking about facing issues that young people care about, um, you know, I, to an extent, I don't, it doesn't matter how much you care. If, if your average age is 58, it's really hard to do something about it. So, so that's, that's a, that's, that, that's not going to solve all the problems, but I do think you need more young people engaged and you do, you do need more young people in power. I want to, I want to come in here as well, if I may. Uh, Scott said something really important. I think that needs a bit more qualifying. You said that older people engage more, um, but it's actually they engage more in elections. And I think that's really important. And absolutely, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it, it would have been a point I wanted to make earlier. You know, for young people just to some extent participate differently. You know, yeah, they participate less in elections. That's absolutely true. And But they always have, by the way. Uh, I looked at the stats for all European countries. The youngest voters have always um, turned out to a lesser extent than, than older groups of the population. But, and that's really important, um, young people um, engage in different kind of ways politically, more often so than, than older people. So, for example, in our latest youth study that we've done at Depart together with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation uh, last summer, the proportion of young people who've been engaged politically outside of elections, and that's really important in Scott's point, is much larger um, among um, that, uh, than among the young general population. So, for example, in our study, um, 75% of under 25s and even 91% of uh, 16 to 20 year olds said that they had been politically engaged outside of elections. So that could be signing a petition, going to a protest, um, sharing political messages online. And in the general population, that was less than two thirds. So much, much, much lower. And I think what this shows is that for, especially for younger people, what we see is a proliferation of ways in which young people can express their political attitudes. And it's not just about voting. It's also not just about protests. There are lots of different ways. And um, they're sort of expanding and diversifying repertoires of, of political engagement. And, you know, capturing that from then from an electoral political side is also really hard. So I do understand that for policymakers, it is quite hard to get all of these different kind of ways of engaging politically together at the end of the day and designing policies that speak to all of that. 
Yeah, I just want to pick up on a couple of threads, circling back to the things we said about an expectations mismatch between the politicians and the young people. It sounds like you're saying that the younger generation is engaging in different ways that the older politicians don't necessarily know how to track. So a common refrain that I've heard from young people, especially in the U.S., is that the system is too broken to fix and therefore trying to work within existing structures is sort of pointless. So I just am curious, has that sentiment been common in Europe and the United States? And especially, Scott, for Generation Citizen, has the added civics education sort of changed that perception? Or do they still feel that the existing structures aren't the best way to make the policy changes they want to see happen? Yeah, I think um, it's 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 a great question. And one of the things that I think about in Generation Citizen and classes is is you can have two polls, right? So on one poll, you say, all you have to do is participate, the system's fine. If you participate, then, you know, everything will will work great. And that's obviously not true. I mean, we could go through, you know, um, statistic after statistic for most sides of the night to demonstrate that the system is not set up in a way, uh, especially for for those that have historically been disenfranchised to, to, to actually have their voices heard. On the other side of the spectrum, um, you have, well, you know, what you said, Lauren, the system's too fundamentally broken to, to do anything about it. And I think that that's actually a fairly disempowering message because then it's, you know, it's sort of what do you actually do about it? Um, and so I, I think it is a, it is a common refrain. There's been a lot of um, statistics that have come out that this generation of young people believes less in democracy um, than any other previous generation. Now, there's some debate out there about what does belief actually mean? It is important for them to believe in it. And do they not believe in democracy writ large? Or do they, do they not believe in the system of democracy that they are experiencing? And so I think that, that that's worth distilling a little bit more because democracy at its core is individuals having a stake and say in governance, and they are probably rightfully feeling like they do not have that. Um, and so that might be some of what they're reacting to. Um, but but I, I think the, the solution to, to the fact that um, people are feeling, I mean, the expectations question is, is the right one. I think the solution is quite complicated because as Christine said, young people are engaging in different ways. They're protesting in higher numbers. Um, they're, they're trying to, to take action on uh, existential issues like climate and feel like people are not listening to, to what they're saying. Um, but I feel like there has to be a little bit of a, a, a push-pull between young people recognizing, well, we have to figure out how to change the system from inside and outside. I, I just don't think it can be an either or. Um, and I think politicians also need to make more effort to understand what young people are saying um, and what young people care about. And so this does have to be, I think, too often when I'm in these conversations, um, the, the onus and the blame is on the other side. So it's young people saying, well, politicians just don't care about us. Um, and politicians saying, well, young people aren't participating. Um, and there has to be an acknowledgement that we have to figure out that expectations are mismatched um, and, and young people need to figure out how to play that inside outside game. Uh, and elected officials have to figure out, well, how do we actually truly understand what young people um, care about? Yeah, I think I think I look at it maybe more from a research perspective. So I'm less of an activist in the field myself. 
And I'm not sure to what extent for Germany, for example, we can say that, you know, there is a, a feeling of the system is broken among young people. I know, for example, in the UK, that's very different. I have a fantastic PhD student who does research on the UK climate movement, and, and she does indeed find that. And I'm probably not going to do her research justice um, with, with this, but she, I think roughly what she's finding is that the climate strikers in the UK, there's definitely an element of wanting radical rather than reformist change to the system. Uh, there's much more of a narrative of the system is broken, but she is finding that that radicalness strongly relates to the socioeconomic and often also racial background of young activists in the UK. Uh, so very simply put, the, the poorer you are from poorer conditions that you come from, the more likely the young people are to want a radical change of the system, whereas more, uh, more fortunate kids, more advantaged kids are more likely to engage in the um, in the system as it is and try to reform it from within. In Germany, I think that's a little bit different. I'm not quite sure to what extent the same sort of holes there. Uh, if we, for example, look at the Fridays for Future movement, which are the climate strikers in Germany, it's quite clear that there are very strong efforts to impact existing institutional structures. So, so these kids really, they are um, affecting change in political parties. They have, uh, they have um, uh, addressed the constitutional court, for example, with some of their amends, you know, they, they are very much acting within existing institutional structures and they're playing them very well. For example, you will see Luisa Neubauer, the head of that movement, regularly in, in primetime talk shows discussing with politicians and she does so incredibly well. And I think they have achieved a lot doing so. But what you also see is that these kids who are engaged in those movements are predominantly middle-class, well-off kids uh, who come from uh, highly educated families uh, who, who follow um, higher educational tracks themselves. And, and, you know, to that extent, I think inequality in Germany is not mediating that whole game of radical versus reformist uh, stances as much maybe as it does so in the US or in the UK. Just one thing to, to echo on that, because I think that those are, are really important points. Uh, structurally, the system is set up in a way that does not adequately allow young people to participate in the process, especially in equitable ways, right? And so I think some of this conversation is, well, you know, how can we listen to young people? How can elected officials listen to young people? But there's structures that have to be changed too. Um, so at least in an American perspective, um, the insidious role of money in politics makes it much difficult for young people to have their voices heard because uh, older generations are just going to have more resources and ensure that politicians can listen to them from that perspective. Um, I think that the fact that civics education is taught inequitably uh, leads to some of the problems that Christine was saying in terms of uh, more affluent young people and white young people are going to get more experiences to actually understand how to participate in the process. Um, and I mean, you know, something that that I know we've both worked on, Christine and I, is, is this notion of lowering the voting age to 16, which is not a, uh, you know, an, an end all be all to all solutions, but I think would ensure that, that more young people are participating. And so I think there's, there's both this notion of how can we better understand young people? How can we prioritize what they're saying? But then there are actual structural changes to the political and education process that I think are necessary to ensure that um, young people have more of a, an equal and equitable say uh, at the at the polling places. And there's a lot of interest groups that are probably set up in ways um, that don't necessarily want to hear from young people. And it might be somewhat because they're pushing for radical rather than incremental change. Um, and, and people have a vested interest in, in maintaining the status quo. But if we're serious about ensuring that the next generation, the foundational aspect uh, of, of democracy at a moment 
in which democracy really is at risk can participate, these structural change needs, you know, these types of structural changes need to be investigated, explored and, and, and implemented in some of these countries too. That's actually a great segue. I wanted to talk a little bit more about lowering the voting age. And I was wondering if either of you knew of any examples of, I know cities have been trying this, especially rather than national governments. So can you give me an example of a city that has lowered the voting age and like what the consequences have been either on policy or turnout? I, I can speak briefly and, and I, I will say on lowering the voting age, I think this is an interesting topic where Europe has done more than the US. Europe has done a lot more than the US. And so uh, you know, I'd love to hear from Christine on on what what you know different European cities and, and countries have, have done and, and why and what the results have been. Um in the US, there are just a, a smattering of cities and they're all in Maryland um that have lowered the the voting age. So so Tacoma Park, uh Greenville, Hyattsville. Uh, and, um, you know, these Maryland cities have been able to do so on their own. When I was a generation citizen, we, um, you know, tried to, to get a, a number of cities through referendum to, to lower the voting age, including San Francisco and Washington, D.C., uh, and we're close, but, but weren't able to get there. And I think one of the challenges is that people sort of at face value hear this and they're like, this is ridiculous. Why would we allow 16 year olds to vote? Um, and then the other thing that they say is, well, we've just listened to you all for the last half hour talking about how young people aren't participating in electoral politics. Why would we lower the voting age even lower if young people aren't participating in, in the first place? And, and my response, um, first of all, I think, you know, 16 and, and 17 year olds are, are perfectly capable of participating. There's a lot of research that shows that they have the same acumen, mental capacity um, as 18 to 21 year olds and, and, and people much older. And the second thing I'd say is that there's actually a lot of research um, that demonstrates that 18 might not be the greatest age in the world to start voting at. Young people are either in college or in the workforce. Um, if you can actually allow them to vote at 16, especially in local elections, um, you know, voting is a habit forming practice. If they vote in their first election, they're much more likely to vote in later elections. And, and you're starting to see, it's, it's very early on, you're starting to see some research that in places that have lowered the voting age to 16, um, you know, it, it allows voting rates for young people to increase overall. Um, I know in Tacoma Park, Maryland, the, the voting rate for 16 and 17 year olds for registered voters was much higher than the vote, uh, the voting rate for, for 18 to 29 year olds. Um, I think the, the, the voting rate for 16 and 17 year old uh, registered voters was about 40%, um, which, is, which is much likely than it is in other contexts. And the problem is, the 16 and 17 year olds are not registering um, at, at very high rates, uh, especially in, in, in these Maryland cities. And that's an implementation problem. That's something that's solvable. Uh, but I think that you are seeing that when young people register, they do participate at higher levels. Um, but this needs to be researched more. There is just a consortium of, of these Maryland cities uh, that are coming together with the University of Maryland to, to study this um, in, at, a, at a higher rate. So I would say that the first signs are positive. Um, and the other thing that's happened is that you've seen some of these Maryland cities and school districts actually prioritize civics education in enhanced ways too, because there's actual real ways for these young people to participate in the electoral process. So it incentivizes the schools as well. But I'm sure Christine knows more in the European context. I've, I've looked at it a little bit. Um, and it is, you know, from my understanding, you're seeing some promising signs and some signs where the implementation has not been, um, been, been wonderful too. So Christine, what would you say would be necessary to have a the lowering the voting age initiative be successful in terms of getting people to turn out? 
what lessons could Germany learn? That's the crucial question right now. And and, and that's something that we've, we're trying to look into for based on the experience of other countries lowering the voting age. So one of the things that has proved really crucial, for example, in Austria, is that Austria implemented the vo- lowering of the voting age to, together with a, a really dedicated reform of civic education. Scott touched on it earlier, civic education, um, teaching and empowering young people to know not just how the vote works procedurally, but also how to figure out who to vote for and how to be well represented is really crucial. And we've seen, for example, in in, in Scotland and to some extent also now in Wales, that that reform of civic education did not come with the lowering of the voting age and there have been implementation problems. So so that is something really that if if, uh, policymakers in Germany are now going to look into that, they really have to look out for to see that there is a systematic reform of civic education and not just also like a localised reform Form, but you know that young people across the country are getting the same kind of civic education and the same kind of preparation to turn out to vote. The other thing, and I think we touched on it to some extent as well, is you know that young people need to become visible in, in public and they need to become visible in these reforms. And I think that's why it's so charming to learn from the experience of, um, of these cities in the US, because as I understand it, they have, young people have played a role in bringing about this kind of reform in these cities. And, and in, in some European countries, we've seen similar things. We're seeing this now very strongly in New Zealand, where young people are leading a fantastic campaign from the bottom up for a lowering of the voting age. But in, the, in some European countries, that's just not happened. Um, there hasn't been this kind of similar debate going up. And then, you know, you might have young people allowed to turn out to vote, but they might not know about it. Uh, they might not know about it across the board. So again, we have sort of the usual suspects that already politically engaged young people that know about it, where other young people uh, know less about it, feel less empowered. Um, and we also don't have the acceptance of um, uh, all the parts of the population of the media, for example, to display young people as legitimate voters. So that is also something that really needs a cultural change to some extent and, and needs very systematic and clever policy implementation in order to make um, votes at 16 a success. Because otherwise, you know, votes at 16 in itself is, is not um, going to bring young people to the ballot box in troves. You need, it's not a panacea in that kind of sense. You need, need to have the policies around that and the kind of debates that this kind of reform can make happen, can make possible, that, that really can have lasting impact. All right, we're almost at time, so I'm going to ask one final question. What do you think young activists from around the world can learn from one another? Yeah, this is something that, that I've been really interested in, in in pushing for in some of the, the newest strands of, of uh, my work are actually looking at and creating an, an infrastructure of uh, youth activists and organizations around the world pushing for democratic change in their own communities, call it democracy moves. But I think one of the things from an American context is uh, especially given the state of democracy in the U.S., um, as opposed to, uh, you know, our, our traditional means of exporting our form of democracy around the world, I think there's a lot that we can learn from other countries. Um, and I, 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 I do think that one of the things that, that's happened in recent years, and you saw this with the Arab Spring, um, is that uh, more technology, more open types of, of media allow young people to see the different types of circumstances um, that, that other young people um, are experiencing. And so what it means to have voice, what it means to have power, what it means to live in a more democratic society. Um, and so I just think even, even that's important for young people to be ex- able to experience and, and see. Um, I think that there's a lot of um, similar challenges that young people are facing both across the Atlantic and across the world. So some of this is you know, what we've talked about, how much should you push for change inside the system versus outside the system? 
Um, I don't think there's a right answer to that, but I think that's something that um, that, that young people can, can learn from each other from. I mean, we will see what happens in, in Germany. Is it going to make a difference that you have um, these younger aged parliamentarians uh, that, that, that come to power? I think that that's something to learn from or should they have been pushing from, from outside the system? Another thing um, that has cropped up a lot, um, especially around the world, and I think in, in some places in, in, in Europe and the US is there has been a closing of civic spaces, um, largely uh, first due to, to, to the pandemic, but governments have used it as a way to hold on to more power. Um, and so you're seeing this in a number of different contexts where sort of under the guises of social distancing and, um, you know, and, and lockdowns, government use, governments usurp more power which means that activists have, let's say, how you actually respond in kind. You're seeing, um, you know, some incredibly creative forms of activism, whether it's um, using art, whether it's using social media, or in the U.S. last summer, um, you know, the, the protest for racial equity in the wake of George Floyd's murder, I think, um, changed the calculus on an issue. And I think one of the interesting things there is that that sparked a movement across the world, right? Um, and, and you saw in a lot of European countries as well, both talking about race, talking about refugees, talking about the the, the, the ramification and, and remnants of, of colonialism. Um, and so I, I just think that there's going to be, um, and I think Vote 16 is another great example of something where this is happening around the world. Um, I think that you're seeing some, some promising aspects and you're seeing some implementation challenges um, and being able to, to learn from um, you know, one another is, is gonna be important. But I think you know, more than anything else, um, you know, in a moment of time when um, you're seeing uh, authoritarians grab power around the world where you've seen more populist movements grab power. Um, I think that the push for young people, and I, I do think it's inspiring for democracy, not just in terms of their countries, but, but something we haven't talked about as much. Young people are pushing for democratic conditions in their workplaces. They're pushing for them in their, um, in their, in their communities. They're pushing for um, having more youth voice across the uh, across the spectrum, and I think this global movement for young people envisioning a new, more equitable type of democracy is both critical um, and and important, and, and something that um, I'm just really excited to see, to see what comes out of it too. Yeah, I think that that you mentioned is closing civic spaces. That's very important, and I think we look at it uh, very carefully over here in Europe. Certainly in the UK, that's that's a, an issue that is not spoken about enough. What really resonates with me is Scott said, you know, young people need to see what it means to have a voice. And I think in that sense, that's really something that that we can learn from each other across the globe and that young people in particular can learn from each other across the globe to see themselves as as legitimate citizens. And I think that's it comes back in the lowering of the voting age. It comes back in a lot of the work that they do is that the most important thing for young people is to see themselves as as legitimate citizens who have a voice and who can make change. And I, I said earlier the young people that I sometimes speak to throughout my work can be their own worst critics. And I think this is a, an attitude and a behavior that activists really can work on and that they can learn from each other on. And I think seeing successful movements, for example, to the lowering of the voting age in U.S. cities is incredibly empowering to young people over here on this side of the Atlantic. And the, the opportunity that they can see that now with, with digital technologies is, is really fascinating. And I think that can create youth movements across the globe that really can, can make a lasting change. And it's, it's incredibly important. It's one of the things that, that I always talk about when, when we speak about the lowering of the voting age. You know, in Europe, not all lowering of the voting age stories have been success stories. Um, some of them have really um, had incredible implementation difficulties. Other um, 
reforms of voting age reforms have suffered from a lack of public debate you know if you if it's one thing to give young people aged 16 17 the vote but if they don't see themselves as legitimate citizens and they don't get that impression from uh, the rest of the population be it from the media be it by being addressed by politicians with meaningful policy issues being addressed and taken seriously by their own families and parents then young people won't see themselves as legitimate voters and uh, surprise surprise they probably will not turn out to vote themselves so I think what we need to create is sort of a, a culture where young people are seen as legitimate political actors, even though they are young, or in other words, because they are young. So because they have different kind of perspectives and different views of life. And I think that needs a political culture change. And in that sense, you know, seeing some of these movements around the world um, is, is really exciting and I think is, is really empowering to young people. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time. This has been a really wonderful conversation and we're really happy to have had you here. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think every conversation about youth activism and political engagement is great.